please remain standing now as I read this morning's scripture. This is from Revelation chapter 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 8 is surprising. We spent a couple weeks in our uh, Yolf series, you all actually live forever, talking about heaven. And a lot of discussion uh, is what we had based on what we see in Revelation chapter 21, which uh, we just read a little part of. But when you get to verse 8, this grand vision that John has of heaven takes a drastic right turn. Uh, John writes of this place that is the opposite reality of heaven. He writes of a place outside of heaven. He calls it the lake of fire and the second death. And John writes this in Revelation chapter 21, but I want you to note who's speaking. It's not John speaking. 
It's not the angel that we talked about a couple weeks ago speaking. It's not a TV preacher firing off hell and brimstone sermons. It's not your childhood preacher. It's not Tim Keller. It's not Andy Stanley. It's not Beth Moore. Who is it? It's God. It's God speaking from the throne. From the very mouth of God comes this alternative to heaven. It's called hell. Hell is not just your last encounter at the gas pump. (laughs) John says hell is this lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And this place is reserved for particular people. Who? Who does it say? If if you were making up a list of characteristics to describe the person who would be fit for nothing but the lake of fire, what descriptor would you start with? How would you start that list? Probably you would include some things that are found on that list, maybe this murderers or liars or immoral people or detestable people. You probably wouldn't start with the word that God starts with. God starts with this word, cowardly. That's, that's interesting. Why that word? What, coward, a coward doesn't seem particularly sinister, but why is it first? And it's this, because cowardly is the opposite of what it takes to overcome. Cowardly is to shy away from Christ. Cowardly is to distance yourself from Christ. We are called to run to Christ for our salvation. So cowardly is to run away from him. And so cowardly never takes an interest or a stand for Christ. The cowardly never want to suffer shame or humiliation or persecution for Christ. They're people who have never put their trust in the only one that can save them. And so it's no wonder that the very next descriptor on the list is unbelief because cowardly and faithless or unbelief go together. And so these are people that God is talking about who have never accepted Christ. And when Christ is not the Lord of your life, then all the vileness and cruelty and murder and improper behavior and idolatry and lying, all of that becomes expected behavior, quite normal. And those behaviors come with consequence, a fiery lake of burning sulfur. And so it's no accident that this is here. Um, John records the words of God. God wants this information to be here. And yet, as we talk about this, as we just introduce the subject, there's probably a little twitch in your eye, right? Hell? Really? Like, in the middle of the great vision of heaven that John has, hell? I mean, besides the fact of hell, really? Hell? Hell is a, a hard pill to swallow for lots and lots of people. Does God really damn people to this place, like the clip suggested? Is that how it works? Is hell really necessary? And if so, if it is necessary, what does that say about the God that I follow? Hell is without doubt the most unpopular of all of the Christian doctrines, classic doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. And so uh, my goal is uh, a couple of things today. Number one, to give you a logic and a rationale for the doctrine of hell that may not have been clear before. And then number two, to help you understand 
hell a little bit more. Because unless you understand this doctrine of hell, you'll never come to a complete understanding of how much God went through to love you. You won't understand the love of God until you understand hell. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. And so let's get to it. Let's talk about hell. I I found a little uh, quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was speaking to his preaching students and he said this, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. And when you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. And so let's put on our everyday face here. Um, and what do we learn first? Let's gonna, we're going to start this way. Jesus tells us that hell is real. Hell is real. People uh, throw around lots of hate for God these days. They, they blame him for just about everything. And usually at the very same time, these, these same people seem to love Jesus. Jesus is seen as love and mercy and forgiveness, and he absolutely is, but what isn't associated with Jesus very often is this doctrine of hell, and that's very puzzling because almost everything that we know about hell comes straight from the teachings of Jesus himself. Thirteen out of, out of every 100 red letters, red letter words in your Bible uh, talk about hell. Half of the parables that Jesus tells are about hell or wrath or punishment or judgment. And Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the final judgment where people will be separated just like sheep are separated from goats. Those who are cursed will be cast from God's presence into a place of eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus describes this separation from God as outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, hell is an unquenchable fire where flesh is burned, but it does not die. And so hell and Jesus are linked together. If anybody else came along and said that there was a place of unquenchable fire reserved for those who never accepted the gospel, we'd probably never believe them. But of all the figures in history, Jesus himself teaches us the most about hell. Jesus, who is the Lord of love, that that knew the most about love, is also the author of hell. That's what we could say. Hell is just as much a Jesus-driven teaching as grace and love. And so, here's the truth today. If you want to get rid of hell, first you have to get rid of Jesus. And there are some profound implications in that. Number one... If Jesus is wrong about hell, he's either mistaken or he's being deceptive, and both of those things disqualify him as being God himself. He taught that hell is a real place in Matthew chapter 25. He taught that it's a place of horrendous suffering in Luke chapter 16. He taught that it's forever as heaven is forever in Matthew chapter 25. And so if you believe Jesus is God, that he is resurrected back to life as no one else has in history, then it's an untenable position to ever say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in hell. Why? 
because the author of Christianity believed in hell. And he taught about it. And all that to say this, would you just at least listen to Jesus? That's the starting point. Would you be open to listen to the one who taught that God is love and right alongside that, that hell is real? He intertwined these teachings so much that it's impossible to believe in only one and still say you believe in what Jesus taught. And so here's, here's the second thing that we'll say today. Justice tells us that hell makes sense. Jesus says hell is real. Justice is going to tell us that hell makes sense. The God that Jesus shows us in the scriptures, the biblical God, is both fully loving and absolutely just at the very same time. Just from the Apostle John, we have scriptures like this. John 1, uh, John says, God is fully grace and fully truth at the same time. And that means He is all love all the time, but He is all justice all the time at the very same time. Just from John, again, John 3.16 goes this way, God so loved the world that He sent Jesus, right? Jesus was sent to save the world from what? From the judgment of God. And then in verse 19, John says that this is the judgment of God, that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. And so God is love, but God is also judgment. One more, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John writes specifically, God is love. And then just a few verses later, in verse 17, he says, he sent Jesus so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. And there are lots of other scriptures that we could point to, but those are enough to show that we have a God who is both fully love and absolutely just at the same time. And it's His justice that I hope will show you one of the reasons that hell is reasonable and it's logical. And let's do that with a little case study. If we turn to Luke chapter 16, I'm not going to take the time to read this parable because it's rather lengthy, but I, w- I just want to share it with you. It's the case study is the study of the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, Jesus tells this story of two men, and his main point is not to teach about hell. His point is that one man understands the gospel and one man does not. And so hell is just the setting for this parable. And so we have to be very careful about absolute statements about hell. And yet, because Jesus puts it in this setting, we can still learn a lot about hell. And so one man in the story is simply called the rich man. And the rich man lives a life of luxury. He's dressed in linen and purple, and his house is big enough that it has a gate, and he feasts every day. Uh, And the second man has a name. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is the exact opposite of the rich man. He's a beggar. He doesn't have anything. He's hoping for just a scrap of bread from the rich man's table, and he he doesn't even have a home. He camps at the gate of the rich man's house, and dogs would come and lick the sores off of his legs, and so he's got ailments, right? And so there are two men, both at very opposite stations of life, and both of these men in Jesus' story die. They both die. And Lazarus 
the poor man is taken to Abraham's side, which is a, another way to say he's taken to heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, dies and he immediately finds himself in torment. He finds himself in hell. And from wherever he is, uh, for whatever reason, the, the rich man can see Abraham uh, far off with Lazarus, this guy that used to camp out at his gate, beside Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the Israelite people. And so to be standing by Abraham's side is where you want to be. It's just another way to say Lazarus is in heaven. And so the rich man goes to hell, the poor man goes to heaven, but that's not the point. The point is not that rich people uh, go to hell and the poor people go to heaven. That's not it at all. Jesus tells this story to show us two men, one who knew the gospel and one who didn't. And they end up in very different places, not because one did good things and one didn't, but because of what they trusted in during their lives. And what they trusted in was very evident in their actions. The rich man trusted in his riches and Lazarus trusted in his God. And it's their names that help us out. The difference between the two men is that one, have a, one has a name and, and one doesn't. Uh, if you read commentators about this, they, they will tell you that this is very striking, uh, that Jesus uses a proper name in this parable. It's the only parable Jesus ever told where a character in the story gets a proper name. Usually, it's just uh, a man went out to sow, or a, a woman lost a coin, or a shepherd went out, or there was a ruler, and then he'll tell the story. No one ever has a name in Jesus' parables, but here, the poor man at the gate gets a name. His name is Lazarus. His counterpart, living in luxury, is nameless. He's just a rich man. And so, what's going on? The name Lazarus means this, God is my help, or we could say it this way, God is my salvation. That's what his name means. And Lazarus has a name because God is his help. He looked to God. He trusted God. The rich man has no name at all, just the designation rich man. And so the consequence of hell is not because of being rich or poor or because you are more of a sinner than someone else, what lands a person in hell is making anything but God your help and your salvation. It is to separate yourself from God. And that's the first thing we learn about hell here. Hell is separation from God. Why does the rich man not have a name? It's because during his life, all he trusted in was his riches. He never had any other identity except his wealth. And when you make wealth your God, your, your identity and your salvation, then guess what? That's all you have. And wealth can get you a lot of things, but wealth is a lousy savior. You take away that wealth, you take away the riches, and what's left? Nothing. That's why he doesn't have a name. All the good things in life that this man was after, he got. And we could say it this way, that during his life, he worshiped his God, riches, fully. And at the end, his God gave him nothing in return because it was never designed to do that. It gave him no help. It gave him no salvation. It gave him no name. And on the other hand, Lazarus has a name. 
God is my help, my salvation. In life, Lazarus has nothing. He's poor. He's sick. He's suffering. No house, no food. And what did he do with all that? He let God be his help. His suffering drove him to God so that God could save him. And in the end, he knew who he was. His identity was found in God regardless of his circumstances. And so the question that we have to learn to ask is this, what am I looking to in this life for my help and for my salvation? Whatever it is, the rich man and Lazarus are screaming to us that whatever it is we are looking to for our help and our salvation, it will not stop after this life. That's what they're telling us. Even in eternity, we will continue to look to that thing that we are looking to right now for salvation to help us, to save us. And hell is saying to God, guess what, God? I'm looking for something else. I'm looking to someone else to save me. If our help is not God, but something other than Him, then hell is where we will desire to be, because hell is separation. Now, you notice I, word that, I use that word desire. That's a, that's a very strong word, but it's on purpose. I want you to see more from the story. The rich man yells over to Abraham, because he can see Abraham and Lazarus, and he says, hey, Abraham, Could you send Lazarus to fetch me just a little bit of water on his finger because that will help me so much? I mean, these flames, I am in agony in these flames. And so go send Lazarus to just give me just a dip of water. That'll help me so much. And so fire becomes one of the images that Jesus uses when he talks about hell. And I want you to think about what happens in a fire. Uh, Maybe you throw a log on a fire, what happens? It begins to break down, doesn't it? The fire disintegrates the wood. You start with a fresh log and the fire breaks down, breaks the log down bit by bit by bit until all you have is ashes. Fire disintegrates things. And spiritually, when we live for anything except God, that brings disintegration into our lives. Every, every time we take a step away from God, little bits of us disintegrate inside. You can see this when you step into worry. Maybe you step into bitter, bitterness or anxiety. Just take a note on what happens to you when you step into those things. You begin to break down a little bit. And if you step into them long enough, then you'll even physically break down. Worry long enough and ulcers and hypertension happen. That's just an image of what's happening to your soul. And so when Jesus uses fire, that's the right picture. Sin disintegrates us. Why is there fire in hell? Because when you are separated from God, you are disintegrated and destroyed. Fire does not cause things to cease to exist. It just breaks them up into more and more pieces. And so hell is moving away from God and away from his presence, and you, you break down the further you move away. The absence of God is a raging fire of brokenness. Let's say it this way. Hell is disintegration. And here's what the rich man teaches us, that if we strive to get away from the God who created us, one day we might succeed. Hell is a place 
where those who have wanted to be free from God finally realize their ambition. And in that place, without the sustaining presence of God, the disintegrating work of sin that began on earth will continue to its fullest extent. There's an old uh, Twilight Zone episode called A Nice Place to Visit. Maybe some of you remember this from days past, uh, or maybe your New Year's Eve binging of Twilight Zone episodes. Um, There's a petty criminal named Rocky, and Rocky is shot and killed, and after he finds himself surrounded by all of the things that he used to pursue during his earthly life. He sounds, he's, he's surrounded by women and fame and wealth, and it is heaven to him. But eventually, as the episode goes on, he realizes that he, he tires of all of these things because he realizes that they're not ultimately as satisfying as he thought that they would be. And so he goes to his, his guardian angel, and he says, you know what? I, I, I think I want to leave heaven, and I want to go to the other place. And here's the, here's the punchline of the whole episode. The, the angel says, why would you think that this is heaven? This is the other place. And at the conclusion of the episode, Rod Serling comes out, you know, and he refers to Valentine as a man who has now everything he's ever wanted, and he's going to have to live with it for eternity. Our picture of hell is wrong. We envision God standing on top of a lid, keeping it on so tight that people screaming in pain can't get out. That's not it. That's not it at all. No one is in hell that does not want to be there. That's the message. All sin is us saying to God, leave me alone, and hell is God finally giving in and saying, okay, I'll leave you alone. And the result of that is total breakdown. It is total disintegration, and you can see it in the rich man. Even though he is aware of his surrounding, his separation, he realizes there's a great chasm. He can see Abraham. He can see Lazarus, but he is blind to reality. He does not do the obvious thing to do. We would expect him to cry out, God, forgive me, but he never does. God, have mercy on me. He never does. It doesn't ever seem like it even occurs to him to talk to God. The patterns we etch into this life don't change when we get into eternity. And so here's the truth to chew on this week, people don't stop sinning in hell. Actually, the opposite is true. Sin is now an unbridled fire, and it continues on. So the consequences of sin, the disintegration and brokenness won't ever stop either. C.S. Lewis says, the damned are successful rebels to the end, and the doors of hell are locked on the inside. The rich man wanted to be the master of his own life, and in eternity, he still is his own master. And you can see how out of touch with reality he seems to be. Now, I already mentioned this, but he doesn't talk to God. Uh, He talks to Abraham. And look also at what he says when he does talk. He says, I want you to send Lazarus to, to get some water so I can cool my tongue. Oh, man, that's bold. Wow. 
You see how he's operating? He's operating as if he still has some power. As if Lazarus is still the poor servant at the gate that he can command to do his bidding. The rich man still thinks that he has some pull even in hell and he belongs utterly to himself. And so his view of reality is completely distorted. And so let's say this finally about hell. Hell is self-deception. Hell is self-deception. The rich man says to Abraham, I want you to send somebody back to my brothers uh, because uh, they don't know about this place. And on the surface, that sounds like compassion. It sounds like concern. What a good brother. Oh, my goodness. He's trying to save his brothers. But it's not. It's, it's blame. It's blame shifting. That's what he's doing. What he's really saying is, hey, I didn't get a fair shake. I didn't have enough information in my life. That's why I'm here. And he shrouds this concern in concern for his family, but his real point is that it's not his fault that he's in hell. And Abraham responds and cuts through all of his posturing, and he says this in the story, even if someone rises from the dead, your brothers aren't going to believe. What's the implication? The implication is you wouldn't have believed either. And Abraham is saying, the reason you never believed is not because of a lack of information, but a lack of will. If a person doesn't want to believe, then they will write off any evidence that they should believe. And so if Lazarus goes back and talks to your brothers, then they'll just find a, a reason to dismiss it. They'll say it was a hallucination. They'll say whatever they need to say to disregard the truth. And Abraham's answer is, you had the truth and they have the truth. And by the way, you have more truth than ever now. And note, you still don't believe you're standing in hell. And you still don't believe. The rich man never asks for forgiveness. He never cries out to God, save me. He thinks he's still in control. He's totally disintegrated, out of touch. He blames everyone else for his situation. He doesn't do anything ever to change it. And that's what he's always wanted, to live life on his own terms. And God said, okay, I'll let you do that. And that's what hell is. Hell is getting what you wanted all along. Hell is self-deception. Does God damn people to hell, as suggested in the clip? No. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People reject the rule of God, and they send themselves there, because that's what they want. Michael Card says it this way, that God simply speaks the sentence that they have passed upon themselves. And let me, let me just ask this question. When God gives you what you've always wanted, what exactly is unjust about that? C.S. Lewis puts it really incredibly on his chapter on hell and the problem of pain. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs? To give them a fresh start? He's done that on Calvary. Are you asking God to forgive them? They won't be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that that is what he does. There's nothing unfair about hell. People there won't ask for forgiveness. They'll just say, I shouldn't be here, and it's someone else's fault that I am. And don't you see, that's what happens 
to you. You get that out of touch. You're totaled as a person. You're gone. You've lived all of these years living for yourself on earth and no one else because that's what you wanted. And for eternity, God just says, okay. And hell is probably the most fair doctrine anywhere in the Bible. Any concept of God without His willingness to say okay to people and give them what they want would be less just. We could say it would be injustice, and there would be scores of problems with that. And so hell and love are not incompatible. God is good because He is just, and He's the perfect judge. Here's here's how we're going to end today with the judge. And here's what the judge says, that hell is not for you. Hell is not for you. You do not have to choose the things that cannot ever save you. You can choose the real help and you can choose the real salvation. All of those objections that somebody might come up with about hell, oh, it's overkill, it's torture, it's repulsive, it's forced on people, it promotes hatred, all of those ideas are stating the same thing. People are saying, you know what I want? I want a God who wipes out all of the past sins of the damned at all costs so that they could have a fresh start. Man, can you hear it? Can you hear it in what they're asking? When somebody says, I can't believe in a God who would allow hell, what they're saying is, I want there to be a miraculous help so hell ceases to be a reality. What they're saying is, I wish God would do something about hell so that people don't have to end up there. And that's exactly what he's done. It's what he's done in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Hell is not meant for you or anybody. Nobody has to go there. Life on earth offers us a lot of choices, but in eternity there are only two that we get, heaven or hell. And if you love and trust God's Son, Jesus, then you will be invited to spend eternity with him in heaven. On the other hand, if you reject his love and forgiveness and salvation and live life for yourself, then you will spend eternity living that same way for yourself and you will be separated apart from God forever. Why did God allow his son to endure the worst suffering and mistreatment we've ever seen? So that... You could be spared from an eternity separated from God and instead experience His glory in heaven forever. Without hell, we would never understand how much God loves us. God, we're in danger of losing our lives. And what you've done is you've thrown us a life preserver. Why on earth would we ever question whether or not we should grab onto it? Help us to hold on to Jesus. Help us to hold on to him for dear life, for all eternity. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. We pray this, Lazarus, 
God is my help. We pray, Lazarus, God is my help. Help us, God, and save us. It's in your name we pray.